Our scripture reading will be in Luke 22, verses 54 through 62. So I invite you to turn to that passage and then stand with us for the reading of God's word. Luke 22, beginning in verse 54. Hear now the word of the Lord. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are one of them, or of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then, after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated and let us now go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and Father, we come uh, thankful for the opportunity to hear from the scriptures once again and to remember the life of our Lord, uh, his sufferings on our behalf and his love for us and his resurrection as well. And we ask that as we consider these important things and we we look at uh, Peter's denial, that we might find much that would be instructive for us, both as a warning as well as an encouragement. Uh, So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open up this word to us and make it profitable We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we return to Luke this evening, and we are coming to the fulfillment of the words that we read at the beginning of Luke 22. So back at the beginning of Luke 22, uh, Jesus had predicted Peter's denial, and Peter had confidently affirmed he would never do such a thing. But here we are at the moment of testing, and Peter is given three opportunities, and he fails the test of faithfulness. And when we looked back at at Peter's words at the beginning of this chapter, I I suggested that Peter is an example of two things for us. The first is that Peter is an example of proud self-confidence because he was self-confident. He thought, I have this down. I will do just fine when the test comes. Trust me, Jesus, I will be fine. And he was not. Uh, He was presuming upon his own strength. He was not realizing his weaknesses And we will see how he is an example of that proud self-confidence. But thankfully, Peter's not just an example of that. He's also an example of humble repentance. Uh, He is humbled through this whole thing, and he comes out much stronger on the other side because Jesus restores him and forgives him and sets him in the ministry. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost, and that helps quite a bit in giving Peter boldness and strength in the work of ministry. So Peter, for us, in this particular passage, stands again both as a warning about our own weaknesses as well as a, I think, an encouragement about how the Lord Jesus forgives 
sinners. He forgives all those who come to him. And while we don't see the interaction between Jesus and Peter in this actual passage, we are anticipating what's going to take place uh, at the end of the Gospel of John that's recorded for us of Peter's restoration. So we're going to see here um, some warnings about a number of different topics. We're going to be warned against the the fear of man, uh, certainly one of the topics that we see, how Peter gave way to the fear of man when he was questioned. Uh, We're going to see the the love of Jesus Christ when he looked at Peter. Uh, That's the detail that Luke gives us, that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. So we'll think about that. And then we'll finally look at Peter's repentance, his weeping bitterly at the end of the passage. And so this passage is an important one for us, particularly as we think about what happens when you fall. What happens when you sin in some way? What happens when you were not faithful the way that you said you would be or the way that you thought you would be? First uh, John chapter 2, uh, in that letter John writes, he says, my little, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So on one hand, John is calling us. He's saying, do not sin. That's one of the purposes of my letters. Stop sinning. <laughs> but knowing that you are weak and that you will at times sin... I want to remind you that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that's certainly what we see here in the life of Peter. He sinned, he failed, he fell. But he has an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. So let's begin here with the first topic, the fear of man. That will be our focus of the first portion of this message, the fear of man. So you remember how Jesus, on the night of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, had predicted that he was going to be arrested and that all of his disciples would scatter. Uh, Back in Matthew 26, verse 31, Jesus said, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, and he quotes the Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This was a fulfillment of prophecy that all the disciples would scatter, that they wouldn't stay with him. So Jesus had said this, but when Peter heard those words that all of them would scatter, he said, no, Jesus, not me. You can count on me above all the other disciples. You can count on me. And back in verse 33 of Luke 22, he said, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I appreciate that he was actually being realistic about what was going to happen. I mean, he said prison and death. You'd think, okay, It's a pretty good promise. That covers the bases in terms of the kinds of things that you're going to encounter for Jesus. So that's what he said. But then also in Matthew 26, 33, we saw Peter make a comparison between himself and the other disciples. He said, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. I guess he had not yet read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which hadn't been written yet, that... He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Of course, Jesus had warned him of these things. And so these were good words outside of his comparison with the other disciples, I think, which was prideful. But when he said, I am ready to go to prison and to death, Jesus, that's a good promise. That's a promise of faithfulness, of commitment, of zeal. But it's not about what we promise. It's about what we do 
when the time of testing comes. We can say all of those things. We can say that we're going to be faithful to the Lord. We can say that we're not going to sin in a particular way. But when the hour of temptation comes, how do you do? This is the fundamental test of our commitment to discipleship, to bearing our cross, to denying ourselves, is when the hour of temptation comes, how does it go for you? And how do you do in that hour of temptation? And the reason that Peter was in such danger is because he was trusting in himself. He was leaning upon his own weak arms to stand in the hour of temptation. Last time I I quoted Thomas Charles, and I'll, I'll quote the same quote again about Peter. He said, Pride had blinded Peter's eyes, so that he saw not the invisible hand that had hitherto kept him from falling. The only reason Peter had made it that far was because God had held him up. God had supported him. And then Charles goes on to say, Whoever, like Peter, thinks that he stands, let him above all others take heed lest he fall. The everlasting arms being in this case neglected, and he confiding in a bruised reed, a fall is the sure consequence. And so he's saying if we neglect the everlasting arms of God and we trust in the bruised reed of our own arm to keep us safe in the hour of temptation, we are setting ourselves up for failure. That was Peter's undoing. And indeed, pride is one of the things that makes us so weak. It's kind of ironic because people that are proud... Uh, They're thinking about their strength. They're thinking about their good attributes. They're thinking about how well they're going to do in any particular situation. But that in and of itself is actually a severe debilitating weakness for anybody that is in such a condition. And, And in fact, I think that is why Paul, when he speaks about the office of elders and pastors, says, you do not want to ordain a proud man or especially a new convert is the language that he uses, because one who is a novice in the faith is at greater risk of pride. He says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, Paul writes, Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So he's saying, for novices that are not very uh, tested in the faith. They have not been trained all that long. They haven't gone through all the tests. You don't want to ordain them to this office because otherwise they might just do the very same thing Satan did, which is to go way up or attempt to go way up and then go way down because God would, uh, he cast down the proud and they would fall into the condemnation of the devil. Well, and in some ways, Peter was a novice at this point. You might think, well, he spent three years in Jesus' seminary. Is he still a novice? Well, he hadn't been tested like this yet. That's, that's the test of the faithfulness, of course, is the actual test of the hour of temptation. After spending three years in Jesus' discipleship seminary, the day came when the biggest test ever came. This was like the final exam, perhaps. And he didn't do well because he was proud. And we see how quickly Peter failed the test. It wasn't like he even made it very far. It was like instantaneous failure for him. So we see verses 56 through 57. It says, And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. 
Now, I do want to give Peter a little credit, not that that's the main point here, but give him the credit for at least going to that point, that he didn't leave, he did follow Jesus into that area where Jesus was on trial. It actually says in John 18 that Peter and another disciple, it's probably John writing, Peter and John did follow. So they were keeping uh, with Jesus to some degree, and they sat because they wanted to see what was going to happen. Now, were they still contemplating, maybe I'll say that I'm with Christ, and maybe I'll be put on trial? I don't know if they were still thinking about that. But when the moment came, there's just a servant girl talking, and she says, this man was with him. And it's instantaneous response, I do not know the man. Not even any like equivocations, not even kind of excuses, or not, nothing else, just I don't even know the guy. That's a, that's a pretty hard betrayal if you, if you were in Christ's shoes to, to experience. You don't even know me? I who have been with you for three years, you don't know me? Ed Welch, in his book, uh, When People Are Big and God is Small, which is a good book on the fear of man, he says this, For Peter to make such a denial, we would assume that his confronter must have been a centurion, a Pharisee, or someone who could have executed him on the spot. His life must have been in great danger. But no, it was a girl. Not a woman of great influence, but a servant girl. Yes, she was a servant of the high priest, but the high priest was busy with his inquisition of Jesus. He certainly had no time for Peter. Another disciple, probably John, was even in the house during Jesus' questioning. If they wanted to string up a disciple, the one inside would have been the obvious choice. So his point is that Peter was not even in that much risk, perhaps, here. You get the servant girl talking a bit, and he is freaking out inside and says, I do not know the man. How quickly he gave way to the fear of man. And he is providentially given three opportunities to say, I am with Christ. And every single one of the three, he says the opposite. I do not know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. And he denies Christ three times. In fact, so uh, vehemently did he deny Christ that in the Gospel of Mark, it says that he actually began to curse and to swear oaths. So Mark 14, 17, Mark 14, verse 71, it says he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So here, now Peter's really gone really far. He's invoking the name of God and saying, I do not know the man. He's, he's broken the ninth commandment, now he's brought the third commandment in, and he is just breaking commandments like crazy here. How did Peter come to this place? Did Peter love Jesus? Did he care about what was happening to the Lord Jesus Christ? And my answer is that he did love Jesus. That is to say, he had some love for Christ. Because he was a true disciple of Christ. We know know enough about Peter to say, yes, Peter loved Jesus. Did Peter love Jesus very much when he did this? No, the answer is he, he did not. He failed. He was not loving Christ when he would not stand for Christ. But was Peter a true believer? Yes, we know that. And what this tells us is when we see this kind of lack of love that led to such breaking of God's commandments, we have to say that our love is very, very weak, as it was with Peter. And he was more controlled by the fear of man 
then he was controlled by love for Christ in terms of the ratios. I can't give a percentages on them, but the fear of man was way high and the love for Christ was very low. And we are told in 1 John chapter 4 that perfect love casts out fear. We know, I think, that that has first reference to God's love for us that casts out the fear of our own condemnation, as we heard this morning. But in addition to that, that principle is true in human relationships as well, that when we are perfected in love, it casts out the fear that would otherwise control us, such as the fear of man here. But he was caught in a snare. And Proverbs 29, verse 25 says that the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So what it tells us in this proverb is that the fear of man is a trap. It, like a snare that you would catch a bird in, and the bird cannot escape, once the fear of man envelops you, you're trapped. You don't have the freedom that you otherwise would to do the right thing. And Peter lacked that freedom because he was given to the sin of the fear of man. And that's what the fear of man does. It entraps us. It puts us in bondage. It's like a self-inflicted slavery that we enter into. It becomes an all-controlling force in our lives that can lead us to commit different sins. I don't think Peter wanted to deny Christ. If you were to ask him propositionally, do you want to do this? Do you want to break the ninth commandment? Do you want to break the third commandment? He'd say, absolutely not. But once it came time to face the temptation, he had no strength. And this was a very serious thing because this sin, this breaking of the ninth commandment, breaking of the third commandment, but fundamentally denying the Lord Jesus Christ put Peter at risk of being denied on the day of judgment. Why is that? Well, Jesus tells us that if you are ashamed of him and of his words, he will be ashamed of you on the day of judgment. You must stand for him and not be ashamed of him if he will not be ashamed of you on the day of judgment. That is a fundamental test of Christian faith and discipleship. Now, as I said last time when we were looking at Peter, this is not an unforgivable sin. It's a serious thing, but it's not unforgivable. Peter is restored. He's forgiven despite that denial. And so I would ask each of us tonight as we think about the fear of man, do you fear what others will think of you if they know your Christian convictions? Do you fear mockery, the loss of relationship, getting fired, people pushing back on your beliefs? Do you fear those things? That's what Peter was affected by at this point. At the most critical moment, he was given to this fear. And then we can ask ourselves other questions about these opportunities that we have. You know, when somebody says, are you associated with Christ? Uh, we, we should speak up. We say, yes, I am. I am for him. And sometimes I think this becomes for us a sin of omission. We talk about the sins of commission. We can actively say something that's not true. We can actively deny the Lord Jesus, as Peter did. But we can often omit to speak up when we are given an opportunity. And I would say this is where I fall particularly short, is in a sin of omission of the opportunities I have to speak of the things of Christ Uh, to a watching world. I would confess this has been a big challenge in my life. It's been a struggle over many years, and I've seen growth in overcoming the fear of man, and yet it can be still a challenge when faced with those that are hostile, with those that uh, would, would seemingly have no interest in such things, to just speak up. 
And perhaps you can relate to that. Perhaps you want to grow in these same things of speaking of the things of God before a watching world without fear. I want to have the spirit of of King David in Psalm 57 where he says, I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. This is a man that wanted to declare the glory of God to a watching world. And and he's also got enemies in this psalm, by the way. So he's getting attacked by the world. And he's saying, I'm going to sing your praises amongst the world. So that's, that's a good picture for us in Psalm 57. But Peter is a picture of the fear of man taking control. That here he is quaking in his shoes in fear at the servant girl and the other people. Fearing what will happen to him. And he failed the test. Well, after those three opportunities, Peter blew every opportunity, and he ended up denying the Savior three times, and we know that the rooster crows, just as Jesus had predicted. And Luke gives us this detail that immediately when the rooster crowed, the Lord, it says in verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Why does Luke tell us that? None of the other gospel writers give us that detail. It's it's fascinating detail that Luke provides. And I, I think the, the presence of this detail should uh, help us to, or, or get, get us to pause and to contemplate what should we learn from this look that Christ gave Peter. Well, on one hand, we, we can only say so much about it because... Uh, We don't have any words here. We cannot know all that was in the mind of our Lord as he looked at Peter or what was in the mind of Peter. But we can know some things because we know enough about Jesus to say a few things very confidently. And you know that in human relationships, when, when somebody looks at you in a particular way, it can be very meaningful. We know how facial expressions are meaningfully Uh, communicating certain things. Now, sometimes we misinterpret them. Sometimes we need to get clarification. Uh, But many times, somebody looks at you with a a look of approval or a look of disapproval, and you you feel that, especially if it's a close relation or a a family member that you have. Uh, uh, Children will see this with their parents. Their parents give them a certain kind of look. It, It affects them. They know what that look means. They've seen it enough times to know what the message of that look is. Well, when we think about the look of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to remember that our Lord Jesus was indeed perfected in love. He never fell short of of loving his disciples. And we know that when Jesus looked on Peter, that even if he was very disappointed in Peter and sad about Peter, as I think he was even back in Luke 22 when he was predicting this whole thing, yet he loved Peter. He had not failed in his love. We know this because when Jesus is resurrected and when Peter sees him again on the shores of of the lake, Jesus does not act like some of us would be tempted to act. We might wanted to have taken that opportunity to just hammer Peter. That's kind of how we sometimes think about human relationships. Like, all right, I've got a a big load of offenses here, and I'm just going to hammer this guy with what he did wrong. But that's not what Jesus did. In fact, he didn't even uh, directly rebuke Peter. He didn't say, Peter, you failed me. I'm disappointed in you, Peter. All he did was, Peter, do you love me? 
Uh, that's, that's the wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. He knew how to restore Peter. He, he knew what Peter needed. He, uh, he knew that Peter had been humbled already. He didn't need to, to rake Peter over the coals and get Peter to do penance and make Peter feel really, really bad. Peter already had gone through all of that. He had been convicted of his sin, and he just needed to be restored by a, a merciful, gentle Savior, and he was. Jesus was the only human being who truly loved perfectly and who loved his friends through the most severe personal adversity anyone has ever faced. That is why we sing, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. What is so remarkable about the deep, deep love of Jesus is that he loved at all times through his own adversity. Even as he went through the pains of hell, he's still loving his disciples who had abandoned him. Proverbs 17, verse 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. We know that this proverb is setting forth friendship in its very best sense, that true friends, faithful friends, they love through trials and difficulties. They don't leave you when the going gets hard. And Jesus is the ultimate exemplar of that proverb. One of my favorite uh, children's books is uh, one that I often read to my children. It's called The Friend Who Forgives. And it's this, it retells this story about Peter and, uh, and Jesus and his restoration. And it's a, it's a wonderful encapsulation of who we could, should think about Jesus being. He is the friend who forgives. He is the friend that never lets you down. It's a remarkable thing when any of us can love through adversity, but it's, it's a, even far more remarkable to see our Lord Jesus loving his own friends through his own adversity. So sometimes this, I think this proverb is saying, you need to love other people when they're going through hard times, but this is Jesus going through hard times himself and loving all of his disciples. And I think when Jesus had predicted this betrayal, he was speaking in love because uh, he even says he prayed for Peter. This is back in Luke 22, verse 31. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. There was no doubt about this uh, in the mind of Christ. He knows all things. He knew that Peter would do this, but it did not affect his love for Peter. He, he still loved him. He, he said, I'm, I'm praying for you, that you're not going to fail. And I know you're not going to fail because I've prayed for you. He doesn't say that, but that's implied, of course, in, in what actually takes place. The, the prayers of Christ protecting Peter. And, and by failing here, he doesn't mean that Peter wouldn't deny him, but that Peter would return. He says that, when you return, strengthen your brethren. And so I want to also read the, the brief account uh, at the Sea of Galilee uh, in John 21. It's a, it's a beautiful scene that's set forth for us in the Gospel of John. There they, uh, Jesus has, has ra- been risen from the dead. They have gone on into Galilee where Jesus said that he would meet them. And they're out fishing, one of their important pastimes and one of the ways they would get food. And Jesus invites them to a meal. They sit down for breakfast And then in John 21, verse 17, after asking Peter twice, Jesus asked him a third time. He says, he said to him him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. So my friends, Jesus' love has not changed at all. The Word of God says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as we look at the love of Christ in the Gospels, you need to be absolutely assured that His love for His people remains absolutely unaffected. It is as strong as ever. He he loves His friends just as He did when He was here on earth. He still shows love for us. He, He died for us. He he prays for us. He guides us by His Word. And he, he loves us at all times, even when we let Him down, which we do let Him down. And that is why the hymn is so appropriate. The deep, deep love of Jesus. That's why it says, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread His praise from shore to shore. How He loveth, ever loveth, changeth never, nevermore. That is what we see, I think, and what we can safely assume in the piercing gaze of Christ, with whatever disappointment was there, whatever sorrow was there, that he loved Peter as he looked at Peter. So we go on to the last of the details here in our passage. This is after Peter has, has seen that piercing gaze of Christ and the effect of that gaze of his Savior is to cause him profound sorrow and to drive him out of that place where he goes and he finds a a solitary place and he weeps bitterly. When it says weeps bitterly, he was weeping with profound and deep anguish. It touched him to the very core of his being. What pain would have entered Peter's heart to see Christ looking at him? And there Peter is, denying that he even knows Christ, and Christ even saw it. Maybe, maybe he had hoped that, okay, Jesus is being questioned over here. He's not going to hear me do this. This would just really cut to the heart. But then when Jesus looks at him as he's saying it, and the rooster's going off, he's thinking, this hurts, because I think he does love Jesus still. He's weak in his love, but... He is pained to see that he has so let down the one who has so loved him. Now, as we see Peter going out and weeping bitterly, I think this brings to our consideration to ask the question, what is the difference between Peter on the one hand and Judas on the other? Because as we will see with Judas, he does regret betraying Christ. We, We find in the gospel accounts that After he sees that Jesus is betrayed and being sentenced to death, he has uh, regret. He goes back to the the chief priests and he says, I can't keep this silver. Uh, I have betrayed innocent blood. And he he throws it down because they don't even want it. And then he runs out. And so there's regret in the case of Judas. And then there is this weeping bitterly on the part of Peter. What what is the difference? Well, one, one difference, of course, that should be obvious to us is that these two stories have two very different ends. In the case of Judas, he is regretful, but then he goes out and he hangs himself. In the case of Peter, he goes out and he weeps bitterly, but he does not not hurt himself. He does not give up. Rather, when the opportunity for the day of resurrection comes, he's one of the first to go and see whether Jesus had risen. Of course, at first, everybody's not believing it. But he goes and he runs into the tomb and he sees what has happened. 
So that's one difference. But I, I think there's other differences that we can contemplate based upon all that we know in this teaching of the Scriptures. It's not that Judas and Peter that were given a full uh, doctrinal exposition of the nature of their hearts and all of that in Scripture, but we do know enough about scriptural teaching concerning repentance to know that there's an important difference between them. We must remember that it is possible to have remorse and regret and sorrow over sin and not repent. It is possible to be in that place. It is possible to have much sorrow. It is possible that you will be absolutely torn apart by what you have done and it not be repentance unto life. We have that category in Scripture. Uh, Some people, they do feel sorrow and remorse over their actions, but they never really turn to the Lord for healing and redemption. They never really humble themselves before God and cry out for the mercy of God in Christ. They never reach that point. Uh, Saul might be a picture example of this for you in the Old Testament. Saul had times of regret, and he even confessed sin in the sense that he said, I have sinned. You remember back in 1 Samuel 15, he had uh, not obeyed the the commandments of the Lord, and uh, Samuel had confronted Saul. And and after the confrontation, uh, Saul says some very good biblical words, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. We think, okay, Saul's got it. He's understanding this. But then what happens uh, just a few verses later? He says, yet honor me before the people. Will you go with me and honor me before the people? Make sure, Samuel, I don't look bad before the people. And we're thinking, okay, he did not get it. He doesn't understand. He, He is not humbled before the Lord. He is not repentant. And that leads us to consider, what is the difference between a sorrow that is unto death, as 2 Corinthians 7 says, and a sorrow that leads to eternal life, as 2 Corinthians 7 says? Judas, I believe, had a worldly sorrow. I think the scriptures tell us that he did not go to heaven. I think when Acts 1 says that he hanged himself and that he went to his own place, That's not very encouraging language uh, to describe where Judas went. He didn't go to paradise. He didn't get to be with the Lord. He went to his own place. And yet Peter, we know, of course, truly did repent. Well, a a few considerations on what counterfeit repentance may look like. And one of the books that has helped me the most in this regard is Thomas Watson's book, The Doctrine of Repentance. It's a very small uh, little book on the nature of repentance. It's a very helpful little book. And his very first chapter is on counterfeit repentance. He says, there is such a thing as counterfeit repentance. You need to be on guard against it. And he says that counterfeit repentance can look like the real deal. And yet it's not. What can it include? Well, it can include, he calls, uh, a legal terror. In fact, a sinner may fear judgment and death and consequences. They might even have some... Uh, fear of God, uh, meaning an occasional sense of what if that is true? What if there is judgment in hell? And what if I do have to deal with this debt of sin? And people can, can have this terror for a while, this fear that takes hold of them, but then it, it kind of evaporates. 
He says another uh, sign of potential counterfeit repentance is it's a resolution against sin. He says you might have somebody that says, I am going to stop sinning in that way. And they resolve in their own strength to stop sinning, and then eventually it doesn't work out because it's not empowered by the grace of God. He says a third way in which some people show a counterfeit repentance is that they do leave some of their sinful ways behind. He says sometimes they'll leave some sins behind, but then they don't repent of sin itself, or they end up justifying other sins. And they say, I'll get rid of this one, but I'm going to keep this one, and I'm not really going to fundamentally repent of all of it before the Lord. Some people leave uh, sin behind out of just uh, prudential reasons. They, it's, just, it's not convenient to keep sinning. That, that is the case for some people. It's just too much of a hassle, in essence, and so they leave it behind. And he... Thomas Watson says, A sin may be left not so much from a strength of grace as from reasons of prudence. A man sees that though such a sin be for his pleasure, yet it is not for his interest. It will eclipse his credit, prejudice his health, impair his estate. Therefore, for prudential reasons, he dismissed it. And so he says people might even leave behind some sin because it just costs too much money. Is one of his examples. Uh, and he says, this is not a sufficient motivation. This is not godly sorrow motivated by the grace of God and powered by the Holy Spirit to change a sinner and transform them. That's not enough. And so true repentance much, must go much deeper. True repentance is not just sorrow over sin. It's not just regret. Judas had that. It is a turning back to God and receiving the mercy that is offered in Jesus Christ. You must go there. You, repentance is, of course, as we say, a change of mind and, and a change of direction, but it's not simply being sad. Many people are sad. There's many people in prison that are sad that they are in prison, but they have not turned to God and received his mercy that is revealed in Jesus Christ. And that is what Peter did. He turned back to God. He sought the mercy of Christ. He followed Christ. And so Peter indeed repented. And one of the reasons I think we we also can see Peter's repentance is that he was broken over the evil of his sin. And that is an essential a part of godly sorrow is there is a brokenness not over simply the consequences but over the evil of sin itself he he knew that to deny jesus christ before the the world was a very serious thing just as jesus had warned so judas's regret it did not bring forth any fruit there was no fruits of repentance it was simply a sorrow that in his case was literally unto death but in the case of Peter, his tears of sorrow brought forth the fruits of true repentance and led to the merciful restoration that Christ brought about. And so I think what we can see then from Peter's tears of repentance is, is indeed there are times in our lives when we have sinned against the Lord Jesus Christ and we need to be brought to a state of sorrow and brokenness it is a good place for us to be because we are told that the ones who mourn shall be comforted. That the ones who repent and turn to the Lord will indeed be forgiven and restored by a merciful Savior. So brothers and sisters, may we learn from Peter here tonight. May we see not only Peter and his failure and in his restoration, but then Jesus who stands there ready to receive us when we fail him. 
Uh, He is the one who will not cast out anybody who comes to him and anybody who returns to him at any time. So let us pray in light of that. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for your uh, redeeming, restoring grace to forgive us, to to draw us back to yourself, and to reestablish us after we have fallen short of your glory. We ask that you would give us humility as we think about the life of Peter, that we might uh, see ourselves to some degree or another here in Peter, uh, and then be encouraged to know that even when we fall short of the the, the life of discipleship that Jesus has given us, that we can be received back and restored and 